today's Bible reading is from Nehemiah chapter 13. Or it is all of Nehemiah chapter 13. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, I heard Balaam against him to curse them, but our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. Now before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah, and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tenths of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for leave of absence so that I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified and I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offering and frankincense. I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials, asking, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine and fresh oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses the priest Shalemiah, the scribe Zuduk, and Pediah of the Levites, with Hainan son of Zachar, son of Matania, to assist them, because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys, along with wine, grapes and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same, so that our God brought all this disaster upon us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. When shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem, but I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. 
After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives to your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by God, and and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign, foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the high priest Eliashab, had become son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood, as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I, purified from, so I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favour. It is said that if you ever get asked uh, to read the Bible and you come across funny names like this, as long as you say them with confidence, everyone will believe you know what you're doing. And so, Peter, there was good confidence. Um, uh, I'd like to encourage you to grab one of these. There's maybe two or three left in the back if you don't have one, uh, maybe one per family, uh, for two reasons. One is there is the most unflattering photo of me that you will see uh, on any uh, sort of platform because I tend to delete them. But um, there you go, there's one of there. But more importantly, uh, there's going to be a slide up here which you will not be able to read uh, because uh, it's more for the people online. So it's replicated here in the little booklet on page uh, 8 and 9 so you can uh, see them there. So now, last week we looked and we zoomed in and we looked at how Israel had uh, returned from exile, uh, exile in Babylon and they had started rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we saw how the people came as a whole group and had come to worship God, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and how they seemingly trusted God for their safety. We found this story in Ezra chapter 3. And so today we're going to zoom out a little bit uh, and we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah um, but we have to understand, actually, that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are supposed to be read together. And in fact, Ezra and Nehemiah is really just one book, uh, at least in the, um, in the Hebrew. It's just one book. There isn't a division between them. So they're, they're understood to be one single story across both books. Now, when you zoom out and you look at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole, you can start to see the structure the book has. And it ultimately shows us what the book is trying to teach us. 
Now, today is Pentecost Sunday, which is why I've got little candles out the front. We, uh, we sang some songs about how God changes people's hearts. And that was the text that we had. And so the question is, how does what we read relate to Pentecost at all? Uh, and it seems a little bit vague and, and unclear. And so let's look together uh, at this book. Now, what, as I said, Ezra and Nehemiah should be read together. But really the book shouldn't even be called Ezra and Nehemiah. It should be called Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but I guess probably the publishers didn't think that that was a good catchy title uh, and wouldn't sell many copies. And so they went with Ezra and Nehemiah. Now the story in this book is really about the three great leaders that bring Israel back from Babylon out of exile to resettle the land and reclaim Jerusalem. And so this book has this very deliberate structure. And uh, as I said, you've got a copy of this, because I'm assuming you can't read that, uh, in your little worship booklets. Now in each of the stories, God changes the heart of one of the Persian rulers. The leader restores something, and then there's this weird, odd, or anticlimactic conclusion, and a group of foreigners gets excluded from Israel. And so the first, uh, first leader there is the rubber belt. Now what happens is that God changes the heart, in this case of King Cyrus, and he sends Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding. And so Zerubbabel leads about 40,000 Israelites back to Israel out of exile, and they start rebuilding. And, and the story goes that um, Zerubbabel is particularly known for his work in rebuilding the temple. Now last week when we looked at Ezra chapter 3, we were right in the middle of that story. And Zerubbabel was there overseeing this foundation of the temple being put down. And then there's this weird conclusion to that story where the younger generations are happy and they shout for joy and it's like the sound of the MCG. They're so overwhelmed with joy at what God is doing uh, as the... As the um, uh, the altar is being set up, but it isn't actually the climax of the story because the older generations there are saddened by how pitiful this temple is compared to the previous one. Now, if you keep reading, there's more to Zerubbabel's story. He, he continues working and the temple ultimately gets built. And the people from the towns around Jerusalem, they come to Jerusalem and they actually offer to help build the temple. But Zerubbabel chases them away and he says, you can have no part of our temple because they're not Israelites. And so naturally this creates conflict with these people and that's how the first part of the book ends. Then we meet uh, Ezra. Now Ezra is someone who knew the Torah well. He knew God's law well. And what happens is that God changes the heart of a new ruler, this time King Artaxerxes. And you can read about that in chapter 7, verse 27, uh, where we actually read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put into the king's mind to glorify the God, uh, sorry, to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so God changes the king's mind. He, he works on the king's heart and he says, um, Go and, and uh, rebuild uh, the, the city. And so Ezra goes. So Ezra goes back to Jerusalem and he, he goes to bring spiritual reform. So his work is not to rebuild the temple, but to rebuild this, this pure worship of God. He wants to bring Israel back in line spiritually to what God had revealed in his commands. 
And then he goes and he starts teaching people God's law. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he sees the uh, the temple and he sees something that shocks him. The exiles who had returned before him, so those that came with Zerubbabel, it's about 50 years before uh, Ezra comes, uh, those who had come with Zerubbabel um, had gone and done exactly what Israel got exiled for in the first place. And that is they intermarried with the people around them. And so Ezra, knowing the story, knowing Israel's history, he's distraught. Israel was supposed to be this set-apart nation under God, and here the people are breaking the exact same laws as before. And so Ezra and the elders, they meet together, and they decide, what are we going to do? And they come up with this plan, and, and the plan they come up with is this. Ezra chapter 10. Then the priest, um, I think it's this slide, yeah. Then the priest Ezra stood up and said to them, you have been faithful, uh, sorry, you have been unfaithful by marrying foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Therefore, make a confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the surrounding peoples and from your foreign wives. And so Ezra tells the people to confess to God, that's good, they have sinned, they should confess. But then he does something that goes against God's revealed will. God is against divorce. And he says to the people, everyone who has married a foreigner, you should split from your, from your, from your foreign wife. Get rid of your foreign wives. And in essence, he says the same things the rubber bell said. In this case, to the foreigners, you can have no part of our people. And then we meet Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is a court official. He is working for King Artaxerxes and he's saddened by the state, the physical state of Jerusalem as a city, particularly how defenseless the city is. And so when the king sees him, uh, his face is downcast and the king says, what's wrong? And Nehemiah explains that uh, Jerusalem's in a bad way and so God again moves King Artaxerxes' heart not only to provide Nehemiah with an escort to go and do something about it, but he also gives him all the materials and the resources he needs to rebuild Jerusalem. It's a massive gift from the king to Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah comes, he looks over Jerusalem's walls, he sees how badly damaged they are, and then he gets the people together, they form this strategic plan and they start rebuilding. And the way they do this is interesting. Now we don't have enough time to go into exactly how they do it, but basically imagine the city as a clock, uh, and there's a city gate at each of the intervals in the clock, and they basically start at, at number 12, and they work counterclockwise, which I think for you is this way, um, uh, until the whole wall is rebuilt. And this too brings conflict with the people around them. So Nehemiah gives all these instructions about how the people are to rebuild the wall with swords at their sides, and there's people that are supposed to watch out for if the enemy comes, Uh, He knows that the small group of Israelites who are there are not strong enough so that if another nation was to attack, uh, they would be spread too thinly. And so each company that's rebuilding the wall, they're given a trumpet so that if the enemy comes while they're building, they could blow the trumpet and everyone could rush to that location and defend the city. And so strategically, Nehemiah arranges the people to rebuild the walls. And his efforts are so successful that the walls are rebuilt in 52 days. Now, again, friends, we have to understand that in the context of the day, what was happening is that there were people living in and around Jerusalem, these other nations. And in building up this wall again, Nehemiah is saying to them, 
You, our other nations, cannot have any part of our city. And so again, this causes conflict with the people around. And so that's basically how the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah fits together. These three great leaders, they come, God changes the heart of the king, so God blesses, in a sense, their work. They restore one thing, uh, and um, then they cut off some portion of non-Israelite stuff. Um, and towards the end, what happens is every, all of these reforms have come to a conclusion, and in chapters 8 to 12 of Nehemiah, the people come together for this massive party. They come to celebrate Israel's restoration. And there Ezra gets up and he gives them seven days worth of sermons from the Torah and teaching. And they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles again. And Nehemiah records us this interesting detail. He says, The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. And the Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. So there's this great party. These people have this great celebration. Everyone is fantastically happy at how God had restored Israel. And so the book records several speeches made by the Levites or by Ezra or by others. And the people are reminded again of everything God has done for them as a people. They go right back from when God leads them up out of Egypt. And again, the people make a covenant with God and they say, in effect, we get it. We know you are the one who saved us out of Egypt. We know that it was our sin that made us slaves again. We know it was you who sent us off into exile as a result of our sin. But praise be unto God, because he has brought us back. And this party goes on for a whole week. And it all seems really very good. And the book ends in chapter 12 on this massive high, where it seems as if Israel and the people are fully dedicated to God, they're fully restored except that it doesn't end in chapter 12. We wish it did. That's how our storybooks would end, right? Full restoration. All is well, all is peaceful, the city is safe, the people have been reset apart for God. Then we get this pesky chapter 13, which is our text for today. So Nehemiah has gone back to Persia for a while, and then in chapter 13 he returns. And what does he find? Verses 7 to 14, the temple is in disarray. There's someone living in the temple who shouldn't be. The priests are not given the, uh, the tenth that they're supposed to be, provo- to, to be provided for their everyday needs. Um, and in order to eat, the Levites have abandoned the temple. They've gone back to their fields to farm. Uh, and uh, the officials who were supposed to look after the temple failed to look after it. And so this temple that Zerubbabel had rebuilt is completely in disarray. Then in verses 14 to 22, we see that the spiritual state of the people are in disarray. They're working here again on the Sabbath. The culture of the world around Jerusalem was infecting the people. Fishermen and traders had come to buy and sell on this holy Sabbath day. And so all of the spiritual reforms that Ezra had brought in failed. The temple's in disarray. The spiritual state of the people are in disarray. And finally, even Nehemiah's own work that was supposed to keep the foreign nations out is in disarray. Verses 23 to 31. 
Um, the people married all these foreign women from other nations again and so wholeheartedly embraced them that their children didn't even know how to speak the language of Israel. The Levites and the high priest's own families have become defiled by the enemy who was living within the city gates. These walls that Nehemiah had built to keep the bad people out were ineffective. And so Zerubbabel's work is undone, Ezra's work is undone, and Nehemiah's work is undone. Every reform that had been brought in to Israel as a restored people come back out of exile from Babylon into Israel. It's all undone. This book of hope that was meant to show us this restored Israel returned from exile, and Israel who's, who finally got it, this book ends in this massive disappointment. And there's even that comical part where Nehemiah, this great leader himself, gets so upset that he pulls people's hair out and bashes a couple of them up. And so what are we supposed to make of this? How is the book of Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah supposed to speak to us? What is God teaching us in this grand story? Well, I think there are at least three lessons for us. Lesson number one. Don't go beyond God's word. Now remember, <coughs> Ezra Nehemiah was written after the Israelites um, had come back from exile in Babylon. And because of this, this book sits in a time period when God has been speaking to his people a lot through the prophets. So they have all these writings, all these words of the other prophets while they were in exile that had explained to them how sin works, how repentance works, why they are in exile and all those sorts of things. And so in the Bible, in the prophetic writings, uh, what happens is that God is providing a theological commentary on why Israel is in the state that it's in. And some of the prophets specifically point to this future king that would welcome all the nations. In Isaiah 11, for example, we read how uh, David's descendant would come. He would be this eternal king and, and all the nations would turn to him for guidance. Or in Isaiah chapter 2, we see that the temple in Jerusalem, in Zion, is supposed to be this great beacon on a hill. A temple would be a place where all the nations, not just Israel, would come and seek God. And in Isaiah chapter 2, the nations specifically say, let's go to the temple so that we can learn about God and his ways, so that we too can live in obedience to him. Or again, in Zechariah chapter 8, the nation sees some Jews going to Jerusalem and they cling to the clothes of any Jew going, saying, please take us with you because we know that you know God and we want to know him as well. There is this desperation in the world to know God. And remember the bigger picture of what Israel was supposed to be as a nation. They were supposed to fulfill the promise God had made to Abraham all those years ago that the descendants would be this great nation, that all the nations would be blessed through them. But instead, what happens? So Rabbabel says to the people who want to rebuild the temple, you can have no part in it. Ezra says to the foreign wives, you can have no part of our people. Nehemiah says to the people around Jerusalem, you can have no part of our city. Is it any surprise then that these great leaders of Israel who go beyond God's revealed will ultimately fail in their plans? 
When you step outside of what God is doing, you will fail. Their plans succeeded for a while, but then ultimately they failed because they went beyond what God had already revealed through the prophets. So lesson one, don't go beyond God's word. Lesson two is that God cares about religion and not race. Controversial. From the beginning, from Moses' day, Israel was a place that uh, was supposed to embrace everyone who wanted to come and live under God's rule and live in obedience to him. Through Moses, God had given all these laws about how strangers, how sojourners, how foreigners who wanted to come into Israel were supposed to be treated, how how non-Israelite God-fearing people were to be incorporated into the people of God. And the problem was that people like Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, in their zeal to do good for God, they're more concerned about the racial purity of Israel than for the spiritual purity that God actually wanted. The issue with the foreign wives, not right from the beginning, was not that they were foreign. It's that they were idol worshippers. They worshipped gods other than God. It was the idol worship that they introduced to Israel that was the problem. The problem was not their race. It was their religion. And this is confirmed to us in the New Testament too. We have the same principle, don't we? What does Paul write in 2 Corinthians uh, 6 uh, verses 14? Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does an unbeliever have in common? Oh, sorry, a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The same problem that existed in Israel exists today. Marriage partners have great power over our spiritual lives. If you choose to marry someone who does not believe, you are in for strife. The issue is not um, what country, what nation, what race or people group does your spouse come from. The issue is who does your spouse worship? Salvation is open to everyone who believes in Jesus. White, brown, black, red, yellow, doesn't matter. But they are to worship Christ, to worship God. Your marriage partner has great power over your spiritual life. God cares about religion and not race. Lesson two. Finally, lesson three. Physical building... Religious reform and societal renewal will change things, but they won't change things. What's the lesson here? Was Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah successful in their endeavours? Yes, they were. Of course they were. In fact, if you were there at the time it was happening, 
you would have said the hand of the Lord is upon these people. He is blessing their work. Look at all the amazing, miraculous stuff that's happening. The temple is rebuilt. The people are so enamored by God, they, they spend seven days listening to sermons from the Torah willingly. The wall is rebuilt in 52 days. Israel is reestablished. It's amazing. They were successful in their day. Friends, God is not against our efforts to work for him, to rebuild communities, to use our gifts and skills that he's given us to do good stuff for him. He wants you to do that. Of course he does. He is, after all, the one who changed the hearts of not just one but two great Persian kings in order to allow the people to return and for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And God has given us skills and talents and abilities to plan and so on that we can and should use well for his kingdom. And when we do, things like this happen. The temple is rebuilt, the walls are rebuilt, society is shaped, and that's a good thing. However, and it's a big however, what we need, what we need what we need not want, what we need is not more programs, although programs are a helpful way to disciple people. What we need is not more strategies or stratagems, although having a three-year strategic plan is a good way to provide direction and focus. What we need is not more groups, although groups are a good way to organize people to execute stratagems and plans. Friends, we don't need any of those things. What we need for permanent, life-altering, eternally significant heart change is a new heart, is a new heart. That's the problem for Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. They were successful at doing the outside stuff. They used the talents, skills and gifts that God had given them to do the outside stuff. And we can be successful at doing outside stuff, outward appearances of holiness, right? But what we need is the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts, to replace these hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, to change our deeply broken and rebellious hearts into hearts that want to worship Jesus alone. What Israel needed, what Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah needed, what we need is for God to enact the promise he made in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. He says, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God promises that he is going to change the heart of the people. Ultimately, he doesn't care about the walls of Jerusalem or the temple within it. He wants the heart of the people. He makes the same promise again in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. What Israel needed was for the Holy Spirit to come and live in their hearts. What they got was new laws and structures and rules and a seven-day sermon from the Torah. But what they needed is the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. Today is Pentecost Sunday. It is a day in the traditional church calendar where we remember how the Holy Spirit came down after Jesus went into heaven. And in fact, how Jesus had to leave in order for the Holy Spirit to come down, to come and live within our hearts and fulfill these promises that God had made to give people a new heart, to teach them uh, to write his laws on our hearts. It was the Holy Spirit permanently living in the hearts of the Israelites that they needed. But friends, the wonderful thing is that for all of us who believe, we have the Holy Spirit within us. If you have truly come to faith in Jesus, if you believe that he has made you right with God, he's taken the punishment for your sin, then the Holy Spirit is alive and living within you. You have received the fulfillment of the promise God made in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. You have the Spirit within you and your heart has already been changed forever. Yes, you will still fail. But God, through his awesome power working within you, will change you bit by bit, day by day. And slowly your heart will be changed steadily, more and more, to be like the heart of a true Israelite. One who loves God alone. One who worships God alone. You will be made more and more like Jesus, the true Israelite, the ultimate remnant, if you will, the one who finally fulfills everything Israel was supposed to be. Physical buildings, instituting societal changes, bringing religious reform, these things will change things, but they won't really change people. But the Holy Spirit will, and he does. And that is what we celebrate today. So you see, you can preach a Pentecost sermon from Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's pray. Lord, we pray and we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that uh, you have not left us in the same place these Israelites were, how, how with all of their human strength and skill they wanted to worship you. And yet because their hearts were not conquered, the sin in their hearts was still there, and your Holy Spirit had not come upon them powerfully, as it did in the days of Pentecost and as it does even today for all who believe, we thank you that you have given us your Spirit. And as we reflect on uh, the goodness of that, the fact that we can in fact worship you, worship you in faithfulness and truth, we praise you for that. Oh Lord, you are so good to us. We want to praise your holy name. Amen.